Have you ever told a toddler to sit still? We don't have a lot of parents in this room, but you've got younger siblings and nephews and nieces if you don't. Um, You've seen it, I'm sure. Or maybe you remember being little and an adult telling you to sit still, don't move, be quiet. I remember once when I was young, um, I couldn't have been more than like seven. My parents went away on a trip, and I don't, I don't remember what it was. Uh, they, they had some friends of theirs babysit us, and uh, they had an older daughter, and they must have been really annoyed with us one night and just wanted to watch TV, and they told me and my brother that we were going to play the snowman game, and the rules were that you had to sit completely still and not make any noise like a snowman. And whoever broke that first lost. And I immediately understood that this was a scam. And I was, felt very insulted uh, by the very notion of a snowman game. It is impossible for little kids to sit still. And I think if we're honest, even as adults, it's very often for, difficult for us to stay put. We're always moving. We're always looking to the next thing. We're always moving on and and trying to find something new and exciting. And yet that's exactly what this passage is all about, staying put. Sometimes the basic outline of a sermon writes itself. And uh, sometimes the author's message for his original audience is so basically identical to his message for us that it needs very little translation, just some explanation and application. And that's kind of what we have here in Jude 20 and 21. So brothers, sisters, beloved of God, Jude says, you must work to keep yourself in God's love. That's the basic message. And and with that in mind, Jude urges us to use three strategies for keeping ourselves in God's love. So there's my outline. Now some of you are maybe caught up on the idea of keeping yourself in God's love. So before we get to the how of keeping ourselves in God's love, I want to say something about the what and the why of keeping ourselves in God's love. What, is, what does Jude mean? When Jude speaks of the love of God, immediately we could take that a couple different ways. It'd be interesting to know how you hear it. Does that mean the love that we have for God? Or does that mean the love that God has for us? We could read that Two different ways, right? Does it mean that we must work to not lose our love? Or does it mean that we need to work to not remove ourselves from God's love? On one hand, it's not of any consequence because the Bible everywhere uh, speaks of the fact that our love for God is predicated on God first loving us. That is, unless God showers us with love, we cannot love him. But when he does shower us with his electing love, we will inevitably respond with love of our own. But the concepts are different. They're not identical. Be that as it may, I think Jude is urging us to stay within God's love for us. And the reason I think that that is far more likely is because he opens the letter as we saw a few weeks ago back in, in verse uh, 1, back in verse 1, he opens the letter uh, with the idea of calling these Christians beloved 
in God the Father, that is, the ones whom God the Father loves. And so that would be the natural reference here later in the letter. But then what does it mean to stay within God's love? For some of you, that's not particularly relevant. And for those of you who are just like, move on, Pastor Chris, I got you. You hear keeping God's love and you just want to know how. Fair enough. But there are others here who are probably a little bit more interested in a bit of theology. And, And even those of you who aren't, you might at some point begin to wrestle with questions like God's sovereignty and human free will. You might wrestle with questions about whether a person can lose his or her salvation or whether once someone believes is his or her salvation eternally secure. And there's a lot of debate on these subjects made by people who, as they say, know just enough to be dangerous. The problem with that is that they're dangerous. And because the biblical answer to this question, it, it defies any simple catchphrases and, and platitudes. The Bible holds both God's sovereignty and human free will in a tension that we can begin to grasp, but never fully comprehend. The Bible teaches that God is absolutely sovereign and rules the tiniest courses of, of history with absolute precision. And the Bible teaches that no human ever acts contrary to his own will and is entirely responsible for those things. So put that in your theological pipe and smoke it. One way that is often helpful to think about that is that it pleases God to choose to work through human wills to accomplish his purpose. Thomas Schreiner puts it this way. Jude represented well the biblical tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. On the one hand, believers only avoid apostasy. Let me pause there. Apostasy is falling away from the faith, going from believer to unbeliever. On the one hand, believers only avoid apostasy because of the grace of God. On the other hand, the grace of God does not cancel out the need for believers to exert all their energy to remain in God's love. I think a lot of people spend too much time trying to work these things out and inevitably wind up placing themselves in God's shoes, which is an impossible set of shoes to fill. But the orchestration of the entire cosmos from beginning to end is simply too big for you and and too big for me. Those who are working well, let me say this. I, I think that letting God hold the universe and trusting God with the universe and spending more time heeding his commands about that universe is the more prudent course. That being said, most of you know I have some pretty solidified views on the theology. We can discuss that another time, but we're preaching Jude. And to that end, the real command here is keep yourselves in the love of God. The Apostle Paul warns us to examine ourselves to see if we are really in the faith. And those who are working hard at keeping themselves in God's love have a lot of grounds for confidence. But those who are not working hard at keeping themselves in the love of God do not have much room for confidence. 
So let's turn our attention to Jude's strategies for keeping ourselves in God's love. Strategy number one, build yourself up in the faith. The first way we keep ourselves in God's love is by building ourselves up in the faith. Jude refers to this as your most holy faith. And because of the way we tend to speak in English, my first inclination, and probably yours, is is that Jude is saying something like, we need to strengthen our believing in God. We need to have more faith. We need to believe harder. And I don't think that that's quite what Jude has in mind here, although that's true and that's a good thing. Jude has already spoken about the faith once before in verse 3, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Jude believes his audience is composed of saints, that is, composed of true Christian believers. And so the faith has been delivered to them. It is their faith, your faith, as he speaks to them. So in verse 3 and here then, the faith isn't so much the act of believing, but it's a body of truths. It's the Christian religion, or more succinctly, the gospel and all that the gospel entails and demands on Christians. It is the most holy faith because it comes from a most holy God. It speaks of the most holy God, and it leads us to the most holy God. When Jude speaks of being built up, it's in the imagery of constructing a building And it's likely that he means that the faith once for all delivered to the saints, us, who are God's people, is the foundation upon which we are built. So on might be a better translation than in in this case. Uh, Build, but you, beloved, building yourselves up upon your most holy faith. Now, building on the faith doesn't mean adding to it. It doesn't mean, uh, not in the sense of making it better or stronger or richer or anything like that. It means that everything we build must be undergirded, supported, and connected to the ancient truths of the Christian faith that we have defended and protected and loved and cherished for millennia. Uh, Consider modern construction. A a number of years ago, it was 2010, I think, a few of you might remember this. They began a project to rebuild the Interbelt Bridges. And by 2011, they began the process of putting the new I-beams into the ground that would support everything. It took about six years to complete, and it wasn't that long ago that we finally got to bear the full multiple-lane glory of this new bridge. Um, when they started the project, though, I can remember many, many days of hearing all day long, this loud, metallic tink in the, difference, in the distance, and just echoing across the valley. And every few seconds, tink. And it would get a little annoying. Five to six days a week, from 7 a.m. to 5.30 p.m., every few seconds, if you were in or around downtown, you heard tink, tink, tink. And it was the sound of these fantastically large I-beams being pile-driven as much as 200 feet or more into the earth until they contacted a foundation of bedrock. ODOT explained that they would know they hit bedrock when they had pounded these things 20 times in a row with less than an inch of movement. And less than an inch is less than four one-hundredths of a percent of their total depth. 
but those I-beams were connected to the very foundations of that rock layer. And so they were the, the connecting ligament, so to speak, between thousands upon thousands of tons of steel and concrete and vehicles and the solid foundation of the bedrock. If any part of the bridge is not supported directly or indirectly by that bedrock, it's in danger. And anyone attempting to use the part of the bridge not supported by the bedrock is in mortal danger. So the idea of building on the faith is not improving the faith or adding to it, but being intricately connected to the faith so as to be secure. How do we build ourselves on the most holy faith that we possess? Well, first, we listen to God. And and the way we listen to God primarily is to read the words that God has given us. He has spoken in 66 books that are perfect and inspired and without error. Over the last few years, we have gradually added more and more scripture to our worship services, adding a a second scripture reading, uh, sometimes uh, adding uh, recitations of scripture that we read together. And it's not an attempt to be more liturgical. It's not an attempt to be more formal. When we come together as a body of Christians, we come together on some level to encounter God. And encountering God is not a mystical experience. Encountering God is not being worked into an emotional frenzy. Encountering God happens when we pay attention to how God has revealed himself to us. And he has revealed himself to us in his word. In fact, it's his very word, he says, that creates his people. And so we are a church. And we are a body because we have heard his gospel, his word. So we dig into God's word. We read it, all of it. We learn it, we love it. Sometimes we read it and we don't understand. So we study it, we dig deeper. We learn to, as as Paul put it, rightly divide the word of truth. And we dig in more and more. Second, we also connect with other Christians, other believers for discipling. Other Christians have had different experiences than us and they understand some things about God better than us. So disciple other Christians to help build them up upon the faith. And we get discipled to be built up upon the faith. And those of you who have been here for a while, maybe I'm starting to sound like a broken record talking about discipleship. But think of me more like your favorite praise song. We're going to sing that chorus three times more than is appropriate until you're sick of it because it's important. Are you being discipled? I want you to notice something. We we, we tend to be so individualistic that we probably hear a command like we see here in Jude 20 and 21 in the singular. I even titled the sermon that way, so it's fair. But the command and every phrase in this passage is in the plural. Build yourselves up. 
There's a sense in which the command cannot be done in isolation. You cannot be built up on the faith and so keep in God's love on your own. You need a church. You need a body of believers. And if you don't have that going on, then you need to reach out to someone. You can complain that no one's doing it for you, but this is a group command, so that means you need to pull your weight too. Who are you discipling? And who have you asked to disciple you? Third, another way we can be built up upon the faith is we can read other responsible, mature Christian thinkers. Then it's not a substitute for God's word any more than discipline is a substitute for God's word. But like our fellow church members, they may understand some things about God better than us and help us to drive those eye beams of our life down deeper into the bedrock of the gospel. By reading other Christian thinkers, we can be discipled not just by our peers in this day and age, but we can be discipled in a sense by saints from other generations and other cultures who have gone before us, who think differently than us, that don't have the trappings of 21st century America. We need to hear from the men and women who have gone before us. The Christian faith was once for all delivered to the saints. And that means that we saints have been saying some things for 2,000 years that are important. And as we dig into those things, we get a sense also for what is new or novel. And there's nothing novel to the Christian faith. And so if it was once for all delivered, then by studying the faithful saints who've gone before us, we can sort of be inoculated against false teachings. In a way, we have an advantage over Jude's audience. They had the apostles. But we have the apostles and the New Testament. And we have the blessing of pre-industrial African Christians, medieval European saints, pre uh, 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 early industrial American believers, and mid-20th century Asian believers, all of whom, and so many more, can inform us about the ancient truths that we have consistently held that are rooted in God's word. So we need to be built up in the holy faith. Secondly, the second way we keep ourselves in God's love is by praying in the spirit. It's interesting, the first way we keep ourselves in God's love is involving the revelation of God himself in his word and the witness of other Christians pushing us deeper into his word. Essentially, it's about hearing from God. But the second way involves speaking to God. That's what prayer essentially is. It's speaking to God. A praying person is likely a person working on staying in God's love. Prayer is multifaceted. And I've personally long struggled with prayer being a significant part of my Christian walk. That's to my discredit. And I've been digging in on that a lot more lately, trying to make my prayer life more robust. And I confess I'm not where I want to be. I certainly not where I ought to be, although I don't know wherever where we ought to be. 
But one of the reasons I think I struggle with prayer, and I suspect that many of you struggle with prayer, is that our prayer is too superficial. We don't pray about much that is meaningful, at least not in a sustaining way. We had a series on prayer earlier this year. We spoke on this a little bit. But you can only pray about dear Aunt Sally's knees so many times before you get drained of praying for dear Aunt Sally's knees. We need a richer prayer life. The Bible teaches us five different types of prayer. Just adoration or praise, prayer in which we adore and praise God for all he is, what he is like, often evidence in his deeds. Uh, it teaches us to give thanksgiving, prayer in which we give thanks to God for what he's done. It teaches us confession, prayer where we confess our sins that we have committed and renew our trust in Christ's sacrifice to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It teaches us to supplicate God, to ask God for things. And it teaches us to lament, to complain to God about things. That's surprising. The Bible is full of this type of prayer. But here's the key. We are to exercise prayer in the spirit. What does that mean? Well, first, it does not likely mean praying in tongues or something like that, praying in unknown languages. Speaking in languages unknown to the speaker is a miraculous phenomenon that was associated with Christianity, is associated with Christianity. And if you don't know anything about this, there, there is some debate among Christians about whether speaking in tongues, as it's called, still happens today. I'm not going to get into that because that's not Jude's point. I'm just saying it's doubtful that that's what Jude is talking about here. Instead, what Jude means is that true Christian prayer is empowered and guided by the Spirit. Anyone can offer prayer. And any of you can pray until you're out of breath. But it will not aid you in keeping in God's love unless that prayer is moved along by the Holy Spirit. That does not mean some sort of mystical prayer. Not at all. The Bible does not understand spirit-guided activity to be mindless activity. That's not... The Bible never makes that kind of dichotomy. Now, generally, the mind is actively engaged in spirit-guided and spirit-empowered work. Jesus and Paul both teach that all of Christ's followers are given the Holy Spirit, who is God himself, that God's presence might be with us always. He does many things for believers, which I can't dwell on here, but let's look at how the Spirit informs our prayer. Because a Christian can pray in the Spirit, whereas a non-Christian cannot pray in the Spirit. And that's really all the difference in keeping this command. Let's look at what prayer might look like in the Spirit. First, the Spirit prompts us to pray. Apart from Christ, human beings are rarely inclined to go to God in prayer, except in fear and superstition. That's been my experience, at least. But the Spirit, being God himself, inclines us to desire intimacy with God. 
Second, the Spirit teaches us to pray. Uh, so let's consider what prayer looks like in the Spirit. So we might see what it might not look like apart from the Spirit. We talk about adoration. It's impossible to express true love for God until the Spirit awakens our hearts to God's love for us. So only in that is real adoration possible, but the Spirit opens our eyes to reveal the beauty of God so that we can properly express our love and praise. It's sad to say, but there are many people who love a God who doesn't exist. They love a God who's a figment of their own imagination. They love a God who, when you start to describe its characteristics and personality, is much like that person's own characteristic and personality. But the Spirit awakens us to love God as He is, as He reveals Himself, even when He shows Himself, as He often does, to be very different than we are. And when those differences reveal to us changes that we need to make in who we are. When it comes to confession, Jesus says that the Spirit convicts us of sin. So the Spirit is the impetus to see our sin and confess it and repent of it. And our sinfulness is like an onion, right? We, we see a layer and we think if we could just remove that, all will be good, I'll, I'll be done, I'll be, I'll be holy, life will be so much better. And, and you've had this experience, I hope, you, you get that layer off, you, you've kind of put that sin to death, and right beneath it there's another one. Something you couldn't see until the first one came off. Sometimes I think in his kindness, the Spirit does not reveal to us the fullness of how wicked and sinful we are all at once, or we would be absolutely undone. He gradually reveals our wickedness and moves us to confess and repent. So spirit-led prayer tends to involve deeper and deeper levels of confession as we grow in holiness. Thanksgiving. We scarcely know what even to be thankful for apart from the Spirit because apart from the Spirit, we are really rather concerned with things that are passing and of no lasting significance. Sometimes, you know, we even unwittingly end up thanking God for things that will do us more harm because we don't have a very good ability to think past the here and now. I mean, not to be a downer, but... Maybe that relationship you're so thankful to God for is going to end in a disastrous breakup. Maybe that new car you bought is going to put you in an untenable financial position in a year. That thing that you were so thankful for is so fleeting that you realize later and only later that it caused you disaster. But the Spirit allows us to see with an eternal perspective and so we're thankful for our salvation, which never grows old. We'll thank, we're thankful for the ways we see God moving us toward holiness. We're thankful for the ways he's moving in others to grow in Christ. We're thankful for others' salvation. We're thankful for missionary work going on across the world. And, and, and so our thanksgiving becomes less fleeting. And it becomes more permanent. And then we even find that we can thank God for that broken relationship. We can thank God for that sinkhole of our economic situation because we know that God is lovingly 
sovereignly using it for our good. And so in the Spirit, and only in the Spirit, are we properly able to give thanks. And that goes along with supplication, with asking God for things, because we certainly don't know what to ask God for. Just as with our thanksgiving, we are so consumed with prayers for trivial things that don't last. We spend the first five years of our life longing for things that last an hour. We spend the next five years asking for things that last a week. The next five years for things that last for a month. I know because I have four children in those different age brackets. The, our lives then get consumed with college, which lasts four years. Or a job, which might only last three on average, if we're lucky. Or a relationship. Maybe that lasts 50, which isn't bad. But if you have kids, then you start probably putting all your focus on kids and wanting what's best for them and trying to give them the perfect life, and then that lasts 18 years, and it's done. I've always loved the line from Amazing Grace. It's not the original lyric, but it's a, it's a darn good one. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. 10,000 years and we've not even scratched the beginning of beginning. And here we are asking God about our splinters and paper cuts. And don't get me wrong, God listens to us. He loves us. He hears our supplications, even our silliest and most selfish ones. He has tremendous patience for his children. And even Jesus teaches us to, pre, uh, to pray about our, our temporal concerns. But notice how he says it. Give us this day our daily bread. In other words, God, please give me the food I need just to live tomorrow. Remember, that's, that's sort of like asking God, God, at least for tomorrow, three packs of ramen. Let it be there. It's a pretty humble prayer request, isn't it? Fill my belly and keep me living for you tomorrow, God. That's a trusting prayer. That's supplication that relies on the Spirit. But we also ask, ask God for things like His name be glorified, for His rule to come, for our sins to be forgiven. These are things of eternal weight. We need the Spirit to open our eyes to eternity so that we can ask rightly. And lamentation. You probably don't do this much because you feel bad doing it. And yet, it's all over the Bible. It's a complaint. But the Bible doesn't teach us to merely voice our anger and frustration at God. When the Bible teaches us to lament, it gives us a pattern of voicing our concerns to God in a way that we're totally trusting in him for the resolution and the answer. Sometimes we might not know what that is, but we trust him with it. That has to be spirit-powered. At least two different ways. First, we need the spirit to complain rightly. The biblical authors often complain about injustice, evil, sin, we need the Spirit to illuminate these things for us. But in the midst of whelming dread and the surrounding injustice and evil, the biblical lamenters put their trust and confidence in God to remedy things for the faithful in his time. 
Often this involves hoping in something yet unseen. And I'll say more on that in a moment, but without a doubt, this is the sort of hope against hope that must be spirit-empowered. Beyond the how and content of our prayer, when we pray in the Spirit, there is one more great thing that happens. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We not only pray in the Spirit, but the Spirit then prays for us. Which is a reminder that the Spirit, by the way, is not an impersonal force. He is a person. Things don't pray. People, persons pray. Within the triune God, intercession is being made on our behalf to fill in the gaps of our weak prayers. Praise be to God, because if it wasn't for the Spirit's prayer, I don't know where I would be or any of us would be. So brothers and sisters, let's pray in the Spirit and so keep ourselves in God's love. Finally, the third thing that Jude mentions, it's not exactly a means of keeping ourselves in God's love. It's more like the mode we're in as we keep ourselves in God's love. It's the context, as one scholar puts it, in which we fulfill the command to keep ourselves in God's love. Really, it's the context that we are to live out our, our entire Christian lives. But it's difficult to separate from one of the means of keeping ourselves in God's love because someone who's not doing this is going to have a, either never been close to God before or is not going to stay in God's love. Jude writes, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So we need to wait on Jesus mercy. All the while, we wait on Jesus' mercy. But that in itself is effectively a means to stay in God's love. Wait on Jesus' mercy. It's interesting, isn't it, that we have love, God's love. We have faith, the most holy faith. And now here we have a new twist on what's really hope, isn't it? Sometimes we oversimplify the whole process of salvation. The Bible teaches us that we're sinners that we're deserving of eternal punishment in hell, but that Jesus took the place of sinners so that if we place our faith in him, we are, as sinners, saved from that fate. And that's true. And it's an offer that's made available to you, by the way, if you've not known it. But we can get more precise, too. All human beings will come before the judgment seat of Christ. And when we stand before King Jesus and the records of our lives are weighed in the balance, we will all come up short. But those who place their faith in Christ's work, in his death, in their place, those will receive mercy, while the rest receive justice. We love talking about justice in 21st century America. And justice is a wonderful thing if you're perfect. It's a terrible thing if you're not. We will all face judgment. 
and we'll be given justice or we'll be given mercy. We'll, we'll either receive what we deserve or we won't receive what we deserve. That's the mercy of Jesus. And it's a mercy that leads to eternal life precisely because it spares us from eternal death. We wait on it. The author of Hebrews remarked, a verse many of us know by heart, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We don't yet see Christ's mercy, not in its fullest, realest sense. It awaits a judgment day. And yet because Christ has promised us that through trust and repentance of our sins he will surely give us mercy, we have assurance of this mercy that we hope for, a conviction of this unseen clemency. It's a hope that preserves a Christian in the bleakest and blackest of days. The days when all seems wrong with the world and the only prayers that reach our lips are lamentations. It's this hopeful waiting that preserves Iraqi Christians when the head of Iraq Shia endowment, Sheikh Allah al-Musawi, says that Christians must either convert to Islam or else be killed or else pay the jizya, the tax. It's this hope that preserves Indian Christians when Hindis, Hindis in Uttar Pradesh press charges against six pastors for inciting a riot when they were holding a prayer meeting. This hope helps Sri Lankan Christians to stand fast when 50 people, including Buddhist monks, storm the Christian Fellowship Church in Ingaria, demanding they stop services. And when the police arrive, they place the blame on the church. It's this longing that nourished American Christians when they were brutally tortured by slave masters. It's a hope that even still guides us when we're told when and how and with what words we're allowed to obey our consciences that have been taken captive by Jesus Christ. As Christians, our perspective is an eternal one, an eschatological one, our eyes are, for, are, our eyes are fixed on a foreseen future. And this is the hope that allows us to persevere through any hardship, knowing that a better world is ahead. And so that's the context that Paul writes in in, in Philippians 4.13. He says, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The words of one chained in a Roman jail. I'm sure it helps Steph hit threes as well, but... Brothers and sisters, we need to keep ourselves in God's love. And to do that, we need to dig ourselves deep on the bedrock of the gospel and so build ourselves upon 
this most holy faith that has been delivered to us. We need to pray, not mindless, babbling words, but with the empowerment, empowerment and, and knowledge and insight and guidance of the Holy Spirit. And we need to do it all as we anxiously, hopefully wait for the culmination of all things and the mercy to be revealed on the day of judgment from our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.